0: Our feature topic this week is a webinar um, that was titled abolitionist teaching and the future of our schools <clears throat> and so this was I mean again we've all been there's there's 15,000 webinars every day that you could sign up for morning noon and night and so this was just one that you know I wasn't really all that familiar with a lot of the people in this group were kind of saying oh we're gonna attend this one and so I just kind of followed the line and just clicked the link and opened it up I was cooking And so I was half listening, half cooking, more cooking. Then I started listening more, then I started watching, then I started burning my food because I'm just in there going, yes, yes, yeah. And so it it was just an impactful speech. And so if you haven't listened to it, um, I'll drop that in the chat box too, but please, if you um, haven't watched it, it, it's just amazing. And so it was featuring three unbelievable educators, um, Ms. Goldie Muhammad, who's the author of Cultivating Genius, uh, Dina Simmons, who wrote the book White Rules for Black People, and then Bettina Love, um, who is a Harvard scholar, she's a professor, and she wrote the book We Want to Do More Than Survive, um, and she really kind of, I don't wanna say coin the phrase, but she's really pushing this idea of abolitionist teaching, which even goes, I even think, one step further than just anti-racism um, education. And so, it, I mean, there's just so many nuggets. I, I don't even know where to start. Um, the, the chat box was already kind of going crazy with some ideas and so anybody want to start with some thoughts and just um, I mean w- one of the questions that you know I want to start with was how does white supremacy show up in schools and I mean they were just had a deep discussion and so we can start there or anybody want to jump in and just share some of their thoughts
1: I mean I probably shared this before I music is my realm of expertise um, <clears throat> But I think it's it's really appalling how much music is centered on a, the effects of colonization. And it just basically is completely colonized because there's so much focus on uh, European band styles and European uh, orchestral instruments, and there's barely any focus on any other culture. And many of these cultures predate these European cultures, but we don't look at them and say, hey, they're doing awesome things with music and it's really centric in the way we look at notation and the way we write and the way we structure things. And it's just really appalling that we have completely disregarded centuries of education that work and centuries of music styles that are real and present and wonderful and part of our students' lives and then we just disregard them. Um, and then, on top of that like systemic issue, then we also have years and years of racism, and due to um wanting to save money, many of our textbooks are filled with um, songs that are outright racist and are blackface minstrelry songs because um because they uh they were free and they didn't have copyright issues. And so like a lot of the songs that like I was raised on are songs that come out of black minstrelry and just trying to remove those from our education, like just as simple as Jingle Bells was a black minstrel song. Jingle Bells is inherently racist and Jingle Bells was made to degrade people and we sing it all the time.
0: And And that's and that's one of those symptoms of the single narrative curriculum that it's only coming from one perspective. And like you said, those are probably free songs and probably it, it just comes out of a place of ignorance. Um, and so you know, one of the quotes that Goldie Muhammad said in the, in the thing that I wrote down was, our children cannot breathe in our curriculum. And so yeah. you're doing all of this work to find things that express their blackness and appreciate their culture and teach their history, but prov- what you were provided is one note, single note and is steeped in white supremacy. Um, And so I'm sure it's not just in music, I'm sure it's in lots of different content areas.
1: So to Amber's question, we are allowed to modify the types of songs we teach, but there's a lot of teachers that are not educated to know that these songs are not, like I was singing very, very harmful songs to my students because I didn't know better. And I assumed that the textbooks that were provided to me were researched and were, peer reviewed and I didn't know. And then I was in a, um, a dance class with Junius Brickhouse and he mentioned one of the songs and I was like, wait, what? And then that made me rethink everything and start researching. And there were even songs that after doing research, I thought were fine only to find out that other people had done deeper research and th- they were actually not okay. And I just had no idea, but it's so inherent. And it also takes, like we were trained on European methods. So I am now having to retrain myself in other systems and reteach myself to be able to teach my students. And I am, at this point, I think slightly ineffective. Like I need to do more and learn more. So yeah, I can change it, but it's very hard to change it because I am not prepared yet and I need to be prepared. So, and then there are also things like now that we're digital learning, we are provided some things in the packets and things. Like, I had to send something out to my students saying, Hey, hey, this song is very racist. Please don't sing this with your children. I can't change the packet. Don't sing that song. Um, and so, like those kinds of things are frustrating and we're also provided with a textbook and people are likely to use the textbook that they were provided with and a lot of the songs that are in our textbooks are those menstrual songs or are those songs that um someone wrote in the style of an african song what's an african song there's no country called africa there is no culture called africa we are like misrepresenting entire people groups because we made up a song that we think sounds like them and that's the one in our textbook.
0: The chat yeah. box
2: is blowing up right now.
0: Yeah, the chat, right. the chat box is blowing. And that, that's another quote that they said was, "'Any curriculum that is implemented "'without an anti-racist lens "'will be harmful to students.'" Vernon, go ahead. That, that
3: was the thing that stuck with me. Um, and I, I cheered silently. Um, I think it was Dina Simmons who said it um, you started the quote well our children cannot breathe in, in our cur- um, in our curriculum they can't live and learn freely it is not responsive to their histories cultures identities or their futures and, and, and I think one of the hardest things to do is um, is to to um, get our curriculum our CNI professionals to To diversify as much as they can in in the when they're writing curriculum Um, I I've said it before I teach um, two reading courses at Townsend University and the curriculum what they wanted me to teach had very little um, diverse authors and illustrators in it and I completely changed it Um, we do have that power to supplement our curriculum in ways, I think a lot of new teachers don't do that because they don't have the um, seniority. First of all, they don't have tenure, so they wanna play by the book. And secondly, they don't have the knowledge of where to look. So we gotta be able to provide those resources um, and, 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 those, uh, and, and, and things like this, where we get together and talk about it. We gotta share all of this information to our, to our teachers who don't know how to or where to look to diversify their curriculum.
1: To speak to Amber's question in the chat, she asked, How do we get curriculum and instruction and uh, CNI writers to hear and understand? I am part of a um, Decolonizing the Music Room chat group on Facebook, and a lot of those people have been like hounding book writers. And let me tell you, they are removing that material. Like, you just start emailing, you start calling, you become a nuisance until it changes. And I think people are starting to hear, especially now.
4: Part of the thing what I'm looking at, it's for, I'm working on on my dissertation, which is on culturally relevant pedagogy. And part of it is that people don't understand, freshly, as Vernon mentioned, those pre-service or aspiring teachers. They don't understand the culture in which their students come from. So often that we see that events such as, African-American History Month or Black History Month are marginalized to represent food, dress, and things of different cultures. And we think that we're being culturally relevant because we have this book that has a face of an African-American or a Latinx person, but we fail to go deeper into the culture and explain how is this relevant? And we don't make it relevant to the students' lives. Um, If you look up the work of Gloria Lansing Billings, she has written extensively on culturally relevant pedagogy. And part of that, it really aligns with Carter G. Woodson's work and when he created um, Negro History Week and that there's a call to action piece with that. And that is the piece that most educators don't want to touch in because that is the piece that awakens our students' social political consciousness. And when they understand the the policies and the practices and start thinking critically, and how to, and then how the, it impacts their lives and their communities, then they're open to um, implementing change. There's that call to action piece. And that is something that a majority of educators, and that's exactly what I'm doing my study on, that we don't touch. People don't mm-hmm. want to, to challenge that. Or we say at the elementary level, oh, they're too young to to talk about such deep topics. You know, I wanted to shelter my children. Well, if you are a student of color, those topics affect you well before you're even in school. As an African-American woman, I can remember being as early in preschool or kindergarten and and cars calling racial slurs and and things at myself and my brother as we stood at a bus stop. Um, so those things infect our lives and if we don't expose our children to them, they don't know how to handle it. And it comes out in as in frustration and through behaviors. You. You're, oh Sorry, go um, ahead.
5: <laughs> go um, okay, I was gonna say that something that stood out and um, what you just said reminded me of it is when they point out this was like, I was really, I really loved the word she put around it when we looked at social emotional learning and she said it was um, white supremacy with a hug. And I was, oh, no. I related to that and I really love the wording she put around that because I feel like um, a lot of the times, especially now, schools are looking at social emotional learning and trying to implement that in their classroom. And that's really big, especially like I'm going into my first year teaching. So seeing like in college and what we were taught about social emotional learning and with but we weren't taught about it with that white supremacist sort of racial lens. It was just about social emotional learning. And I found the effect like I see the effects firsthand because I was involved in 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 a mentor group. And I mentored this one um, black girl and in second grade she told me that she hated white people and when I was dissecting it I was realizing that like all of the white people that she um it was a majority black school and a black community so all the white people that she did interact with they were hurting her um they were spirit murdering her like they said in that in the um thing and then they And then they were like oh go to this mentor club and like social emotional learning and like put a band-aid on it but it didn't it didn't um target the reason or target what her her trauma so it was just like um let's learn about how to like they said it was kind of like navigating racism instead of just being like looking at it and saying this is what's bothering you and you're validated and let's find a way to Um, abolished it it was just kind of like when you're upset breathe three times but she was like I I don't like don't so I think that's where she got her hate because it was like don't hurt me and then ask for a hug because I'm not healed yet and I think she just lacked healing so like when they were saying that um, white supremacy with the hug I was like wow that's so powerful and that's something that like you were saying, kids are never too young because it's traumatic for them and they need they need that direct um, apology and that direct um, healing. So that was something that I um, took away from it. That
3: resonated, yes, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, that, that was extremely powerful. So thank you, Jocelyn, for bringing it up because I was gonna bring it up when, sure, when. Um, and, I, and again, I think it was Dina Simmons who said that um, you cannot be trauma-informed if you are not addressing the trauma of racism and white supremacy and and it reminded me of uh, about three weeks ago maybe three or four weeks ago we were having a staff meeting and um and i thought it was going to be about race and and issues surrounding the uprisings and it ended up being about social emotional learning and i said "Whoa, whoa back up what what is this meeting about what are we talking about it was the instructional leadership team and um, it was just all about social emotional learning, social emotional learning. I said, wait a minute, we're missing, we're missing something here. There's a whole big piece in this. I mean, <laughs> our kids are being traumatized, especially those that um, have to deal with racism on a daily basis. That's traumatic for them. If you're not addressing race, you're not addressing um, the, uh, some of the true effects of so, uh, that social and emotional learning can, can help. And you're creating harm if you're not addressing race in
6: that way. And that, okay, I'm going to jump in if I can. Um, I love the analogy about we're all a body, right, in a school, right? And if there's a broken leg, then that's a problem because it can't work, right? And, And I can't recall who was saying that, but anybody who doesn't care about all those limbs, get out. Get out of teaching. Because you're traumatizing the children and the other staff and the parents. You're being traumatic. You've got it whole system. And I think that speaks, Vernon, to what you were saying and Jocelyn, what you were saying prior to that.
0: I mean, it's pushing for everyone's humanity and it's not solving the problem so I don't have to fill out paperwork. And so that you feel somewhat better, it's to really fix the systemic problem at the root. And I think if you're not acknowledging the systemic racism that exists, and you're not looking with that anti-racist lens, like you're saying, if you just want to jump right into the SEL pool without that lens, it's it's going nowhere, and it's going to be potentially harmful because you're not you're starting off from the with the wrong premise. Um,
7: anybody else want to jump in? Um, I thought something that Hillary said that was referenced was super powerful with it's not just that we're harming students in this it's also that we're harming um, our staff as well and when we think about even engaging our staff in this work like are we just saying to like the the black person on your staff like hey why don't you like we need you like right now so like could you come in and like lead us on this equity journey and I think that's so powerful for us to remember too that Even like as we're, you know, in summer and we're like engaged in all this learning that, I mean, it's been said many times not to just rely on your black friends, but I think even from like a leadership standpoint, I guess, like when you're at your school and doing this work or in any other place, it's not just our students, it's it's our staff as well. It's like our colleagues as well.
0: well. One thing that really stuck out to me was, and I think that's been sort of the, conversation around this work is who's really doing the work? Yes, we all need to be doing it, but do you ask a black person for information? Do you do it all by yourself and not, is it your family members? You know, Who's really responsible is it to do the work? Um, But one of the things that they really push that's been really eye-opening for me is really the push for black girl magic and to let black women actually lead. And I think that that's part of it where it's not putting the work on black women and black men, but even black women especially, but it's also allowing them the opportunity to lead and to really listen to what they're saying and support what they're saying. I mean, because they're really the drivers of humanity, and they've not really been created given the space. And so that's something that I've been reflecting on, even as a black man. But even the privilege I have as a man versus you know the the the, the trauma really that is the black woman in America and all around the world. Um, Malcolm X has that favorite quote, the famous quote as well. You know, there's no one more disrespected in America than the black woman. Um, and I think Bettina Love was really making that point of, you know, not just black women, but black queer women as well. Um, and sort of, you know, the, the, they've been doing this work for such a long time. Is this now finally the time for us to move aside and let them actually lead? Um, and I, I found that really powerful as well.
8: Yeah, uh, sorry, just to jump in on that really quick. Like, I, one of the things that I thought was, really incredible about uh listening to this was um it sort of put into words a lot of things that have been like rolling around in my brain but like what one thing that you just said brennan earlier was a push for everyone's humanity like i think that that's one of the things that i have sort of misunderstood about this whole situation is it's not it's not a thing it's not a question of uh pulling the black community up to the white community or black students up to white students it is about white people finding their own humanity because there is a a huge part of this where we don't have we're not a part of just humanity Uh, but then the black women leading was another thing that was so uh so so informative because they are constantly forced to have the most inclusive mindset like that is the only way that black women have and and lgbt black community have been able to get to this point is is through being forced to have such an inclusive mindset which is so 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 why would i be saying anything which is why am i saying something right now just and one more thing was at the end of it she um patina said uh about parents uh you know not being in schools not not wanting to go to parent-teacher conferences and and why even thinking that that is of like a parent's being irresponsible is so harmful. And, and what stuck with me was uh, the solution to, to problematic actions often is, is uh, changing problematic mindsets, not changing the actions of those things, but changing the mindsets of why those things are occurring, right? The, the, so that was it. All right. Thanks for letting me share. <laughs>
2: We talk about when Bettina was sharing her experience in college, when she got into her freshman um, classes and she went to her advisor to advocate for herself and was told that you're an inner city kid. And it makes me think, um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a principal in an elementary school um, in Essex and I um, serve a lot of uh, black and brown children. And I think a lot about why are my black students, and I was in data world for the last two days for all day today and all day yesterday. And I just keep seeing the same data year after year. Um, My black boys are not performing as well as the rest of um, the students. And when I heard Bettina talking about that experience, um, I couldn't help but keep thinking about how we um, often as white, I'll just keep it local and immediate, as white female educators, um, we often lower the bar. Um, unintentionally, I think, Um, and we lower these expectations, um, and that was just such a clear example of her advisor lowering the bar so low that it was so harmful, and um, imagine all of those patinas out there that don't go to the advisor and don't ever even really um, have have that conversation, and um, that was huge
9: to me.
6: Yes, like... Kelly, to, to go back to your point, like, she took first aid class for a semester, right? Okay. So it's a waste. I think we oftentimes have to think, and also, you know, I'm a white woman, okay, local media. Um, what, what are we wasting time on, right? Because this year, no child in America basically got taught from May or March through June. So, gosh, those seven, six, seven months that they did, that was critical every second, where is time being wasted? And what can we do about that? Because it's equity, it's equity, it's equity. For some kids, every second counts in our school buildings. In the chat, I keep seeing a big conversation about why aren't we doing
2: things differently? And it's been this way for 17 years. And I will say, um, this is going into my fifth year as a, a principal, my ninth year as an administrator. And I, um, for the first time this year, we are having very honest conversations about race. Every single time my executive director talks to me on the phone, talks to me on the Zoom, talks to me in person, every single time, she's constantly wanting to know how we're gonna do better um, for our, our black and brown students. And I hadn't seen that ever before. I think we were putting band-aids on um, in the past and now they're really um, with the new teach- learning uh teaching and learning framework. It is all about um, really looking deeper into the whys. Um, so I'm hopeful, I, I might be being naive, but I'm hopeful that we're going to uh, move in, in a better direction in BCPS.
10: Kelly, I'm gonna say that that resonated with me a lot. Also that statement of her being tracked from just from the area that she lived in, And I thought even about the school where I am and students not being recommended for advanced classes coming from elementary to middle school, um, prior even to me being there and the shift and and looking at, and we were immersed in data We're meeting this week, but this was the first year in years that students had been um, moved on for advanced academics for middle school. And I thought, what does that say for us in looking at students as early as elementary school, how that projects a life track almost for students. So we really have to be really careful as educators, what we're saying about a student's life trajectory, really. As an elementary school student, as a third grader now, Mm-hmm. going back to we have to be super careful what we are saying um yes or no and and I feel like that weighs on me as a huge responsibility and um I don't know I, I really I really listen and actually I listened to it the other day on my walk and I re-listened to it today and that that statement that she made just it just on, it just weighs on me about the huge responsibility that we have for students.
0: And I also think though, some of that responsibility is part of the system like state testing where you have this pressure of, yeah, I want my kids to perform on this one test. And so what Bettina is saying and what is so powerful is we need to, and like you're saying, it's a lot of responsibility. Maybe that's not our responsibility to have these kids meet this standardized test score a number or to meet an FNP level, whether it's RZ or Q, that, you know maybe that's not it. And so maybe we need to abolish some of those things. How far are we willing to push to abolish state standardized tests? Like Karen was pushing the senator earlier, and it's still Are there still some of those controls, or as teachers, are we looking with this anti-racist lens and we need to remove a lot of these norms and things that are you know harmful to us as teachers? Because like you're saying, yeah, it's overwhelming. Of if I make the wrong decision here with this student that could really put him on a trajectory. Is that, why, why is that mechanism even possible in, in schools? That, that shouldn't be there. It should be, he has a thousand supports, not a trap door that he can fall into if I make the right, right decision, if he gets the wrong teacher, if he goes to a school that's not using an anti-racist approach. Um, so how far are we willing to push to abolish is something that I was inspired by and is, remains to be seen or or do we have that power? What do you guys think?
6: I, I wanted to speak to that. I was blown away by that idea of that 19th century those black literary societies right that was so cool and they were talking about harriet tubman and these other early activists and abolitionists and educators and that they had four goals identity who were they skills that that's what we teach that's our curriculum we teach skills but what about that identity piece? and then a new word to me was Credicality, that was new to me. That's powerful, that word. And then um, intellectualism. And I think when you look at that broad picture, it wasn't just let's read books and write together. No, it was how can we understand and grow to fight oppression and do it strategically.
0: Yep, and that concept of criticality is how do we advance understanding of equity and oppression And I think that's where we've all been very, the collective we have been uncomfortable having that conversation in professional settings or public settings of really taking the skill of being critical and using that anti-racist lens with every decision that you make, every conversation you have, every lesson you teach, yes, you need to have that anti-racist lens because systemic racism is so steeped into what we do every day. You have to be mindful all the time. And so that, that, she was saying that criticality like you're saying, Hillary is such an important skill that we need to develop. Um, Anybody else wanna jump in on any thoughts? And so yeah, she identified identity, skills, criticality, and intellectualism, and focusing on, are we just focused on skills? Is it too much on skills? Do we wanna really teach the whole child, or are those just lip service that we're saying Is it just really we're just teaching you know skills to get the score on the test
5: i think that looking at those um i guess learning objectives changes i like them a lot because it changes the purpose of the learning itself it's more of like normally like well i was homeschooled all my life so like um, comparing like the way that I learned and that I was able to learn, have the freedom to learn um, based on like maybe my cousins and my friends was really different. I think the biggest reason why I wanted to get into teaching was and like um, to pursue the career was that I wanted to um, be able to produce free thinkers. And I think that's what they talked about in the, in the, um, the webinar that like the way that we teach based on just skills doesn't produce free thinkers and people who are strong enough to like abolish a whole entire system because it's kind of like, I kind of think of it as like a conveyor belt, it's kind of like, these are the things you need to know. And it's just like repetitive, like over and over. And so when it's like, when they're, when students are faced with situations or people are faced with situations later in life or even like at that moment, it, we they weren't prepared to be a free thinker and to say this something's not right and to be able to have like, like they were, they didn't learn the skills and the, the mindset and their identity that they needed to push forward and be confident in what they know that is right. So I think using those standards along with the skills are is amazing and really powerful because it helps our students um, gain confidence in who they are and be able to stand up for things that they believe are wrong or right
3: Right. that's where i think that's where we missed the point um when we when we teach to the test and when we're having all these conversations that don't allow and i I love what karen talked about free thinkers as well as in the um the um, podcast there um i can't remember who was, was talking about free thinkers but we missed that whole point if we if you look at other um education systems around the world they are looking at a different set of norms than we are when we're measuring student achievement they're looking at 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 things like creative creativity and free thinking and and problem solving and we're not really looking at that
0: and that was something that we talked about a couple weeks ago about sort of the success criteria and how do we measure student success? And are we using some of these antiquated um, racist systemic measures, or do we need to develop, you know, our own criteria of success? And that was, you know, sort of the deep conversation we had about what is the role of the educator, how do we affirm black excellence? Do you see black excellence in your Black students? Are you able to affirm the the, the many different cultures that are represented in your classroom? And we have diverse classrooms. Are you confident enough? to represent all of those cultures appropriately and and excel all of our students. Um, Amber, you wanna jump in? Or Cornell, you wanna jump in?
11: I was trying really hard to Uh, not and to just like be low key, but then I couldn't stop participating in the chat, so sorry.
0: Okay, it's it's an audio format, so we wanna hear you.
11: Right, yeah, I don't know. I just was like trying to go low key. I don't know. I didn't mean to
0: call you out, out. I'm sorry.
11: No, it's all good, it's all good. I'm here now. Hey, everybody. Hey. (laughs) Um, Sorry I was late, but hey. So I love this chat. Brendan, you are just on fire and doing so many amazing things. And I'm just like, I was super tired. Now I'm energized and I want to go change the world and do something crazy, so thank you. But I don't know, I guess the abolitionist video of course captivated me as I know. I, I, I believe it did everybody else on this call too, but like now I'm like, how do we make that required watching? or like required, like I want almost, almost the way that before we have equity conversations, we do the courageous conversations. And before we, you know, go back to school for the beginning of the year, we always have that like random PD week, like, how do we embed that and make it so that that's like, because I don't want to talk about math. I'm a math resource teacher. I don't know if y'all know. I don't want to talk about science. I don't want to talk about music. I don't want to talk about any of it. I don't want to talk about any other adult Learning things of how to redo and start school again. I don't want it. I want to talk about that video. I want people uncomfortable, and I want people discussing like I what we're doing and how we're mov- how, how how like we're navigating. I want that for our first week back. I want that to be reimagined. I'm all about everything in that video, Vernon and you and, and Hillary and Kelly. Everybody quoting it like I'm with you totally. Like the vi- I mean life changing the video. I am not the same. As I was before the video, which is good. I'm happy for it. But I want everybody to get that awakening. And that's kind of where I'm at now too. like, how do we get I just I'm in like this action thing. Amber, if if I I could
12: respond to you. Um, When I watched it, I was I was I started just I wasn't even done with it, which made me a little nervous, but I started to send the links to our school board members and I didn't send it to all Because some of them. I'm not seeing action from ever I see words. I will see action. So I sent it to some key players and i um, hoping to have some coffee conversations very soon. Not because I know everything, but because that, you know, watching that raise so many questions and so many good conversations. Um, I think, I think we need to pick our key leaders and I think we need to talk to them exactly about the things that we're talking about here.
11: Mm-hmm. And
12: it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but I can't, I can't see one more student be overlooked. I cannot see one more student in tears because the teacher just misses it. I feel like the majority of our white middle-class teachers have no clue. The other night I was at a, um, we did a small crab feast, a a group of teachers that I adore. And I started talking to them about, you know, the books that you guys have been recommending and that I've been reading and, you know, 13th, When They See Us, Selma, you know, on and on. And, you know, I watch TV and cry all day, but we've got to talk about it. And a lot of them were saying, what do you mean the judicial system? They don't, even get to go to, they don't even get to go to court? What do you mean? Yeah, no, they just settle, they just take the felony. What do you mean they take the felony? Well, they must be guilty. No, we don't, they don't even know. They haven't even done the court case. You know, we're breaking our families apart and then we're blaming them because there's no family support.
2: Mm-hmm.
12: Th- there's a huge crevasse, that's the right way to say it, a crevasse mm-hmm. of lack of knowledge, no background, no understanding. They love their kids but we're missing it, and, and I, see, I see the trauma every day. I see it, and I spoke to a mom, and I asked her how she was doing, and she said, I'm not doing well at all. I have three black sons. She said, every day, I, I, I tell them, you most likely will experience trauma, but you can always come home and be safe, and as a teacher, that's not okay. That's just oh. not okay, so help me.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, so th- but, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was thinking about the, um, the hate you give, and, and a lot of us, reson- um, I was in a group who watched that together. There were about 40 of us, and we watched that movie together. Many of us had read the book beforehand. And, and, and um, I had a, a colleague, a white colleague, um, in that group who said, is that real? Do you really have conversations about how to navigate the world with your black sons? I said, absolutely.
11: Mm.
9: My
3: father had it with me, my grandfather had it with my gran- my um, father, and I had it with both my sons, and both my sons are criminal justice majors, and in, wow. in co- well, one is graduated, but the other one's in college now, and yeah, we have those conversations before they leave out the house. This is what you do when you get stopped by police. This is what you do if someone's following you in a store and asks you a question. This is what you do if you're stopped on the street. We still have those conversations, and um. And, and, I, and I'm glad the person asked because there are people who just don't know. It's not their reality. But because it's not the reality, people think it doesn't exist.
9: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's the, that's the thing. We have to move beyond believing, um, not believing something because it's not our reality.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's the really key component is the belief in your truth. And a lot of things when I'm sharing my truth, with you, a lot of people are very quick to in that they're defensive, but they're basically saying, "I don't believe your truth." Mm-hmm. And if you know challenging people's lived experiences, I think we're in a in a space now where you can't say, "I don't believe you," if mm-hmm. someone is sharing their their lived truth, because the lived experiences are so vast and so different um, that that is if if you're not understanding and at least able to listen to someone telling you something that may be very hard to hear then the healing is not going to begin because you're not you're not invested the way that you should be um, because this is you know work that needs to be done for humanity. And so I think people are now being very honest about their truths, where professionally or publicly, maybe they didn't have that space or opportunity, i e black women, <laughs> black, queer women as well. Um, but now that they are sharing our truth, we have to believe we have to start with the premise of believing people in their truths when they're when they're sharing.
13: I think. Um, Before, Brendan, you were saying something, you were talking about black excellence. And I think that that is exactly what the problem is. The problem is black excellence. In schools, we focus on skills. And that's it. That's all we focus on. And so if you, um, I don't, I already started reading Dr. Muhammad's book and like I had already and I'm halfway through. Um, Bettina Love's book and it will it will completely shift your mind Um, and I've I've said this at a couple of at a couple of the gatherings where I've been is that students who are black and brown and poor have a completely different skill set that we do not emphasize and that is what and that is as a result of the culture that in which students need to navigate not only do they have, they have to navigate the culture fr- from which they're born, but they also have to learn how to navigate white culture too. Whereas white people do not have those same skill sets. Like we navigate white culture because it's the predominant culture. And so I, you know, can just sort of go along in, in my own way. And the white culture is a very, um, is that literal melting pot. And so you just become this homogeneous kind of, of bland thing. And so when I, you know, I, as a white person don't necessarily have all of these other, uh, all of these other components of my being, I don't even know my identity. When you, when I, in my class at Towson that I teach, when I talk to white students about, about white culture, they're, 80% 80% of the time they're like, I have a culture. Like they, they're not even cognizant of the fact that there is a white culture. And so I think that is a huge part of the fear that is is out there. Um, yeah, and I, for me, from from their talk, the one thing that, and from the books is like, we cannot fix this system, we can't fix it. Like this system needs to be ripped down and built up. Like th- th- this system can exist no more because this exists. This system has only one purpose. It has one purpose, and we have to dismantle it, just completely dismantle it and build something new. But then, how do we get it? And for society
11: how do we get people above us and in charge and empowered to like agree and see that we have to just get rid of it like redo or i mean like go anew you know what i mean like
0: and i think bettina love
11: simple
0: (laughs) bettina love put it in a way where she said you know one we can't put a fresh coat of paint on this broken system but also she said you know the the leaders or sort of leadership have has already shown their hand they've shown that when the chips are down they can spend some money and they can, get, they can pull things together mighty quickly. But now before, and Senator Hedleman bought that up, and I'm glad she said that, Hogan didn't need to announce these cuts when he did, that that was unnecessary. And so when we talk about some of these things, they've shown their hands that these cuts are coming, and that really if we have to in a, a pinch pull out all this money, it's possible, and so now we can reject that. And so when they say all oh, these cuts can happening and now all this burden is on principals and leader, school leaders be leaders, teachers be leaders, we can reject that because they've already shown their hands where when the chips are down, you can do the right thing and fund these things properly. Um, so the question is, how do we really hold them to that standard um, and really abolish this, this crooked, corrupt system? That's I don't
11: think answer. everybody don't
13: wants want to
0: abolish. Answer. Say it again?
11: I don't think everybody wants to abolish.
13: Of course not. Why would people want to want to abolish Amber? Because people want to just keep the status quo. Right. Because it might be a little bit uncomfortable and ooh, the perception is somebody else might get a piece of my cookie, but that is not true. Like those things are fallacies. They're fallacies that we are fed from birth and even, even the concept of um, you know, like this work being done. Well, and one of the things for me that was super powerful is that you might not live to see the finish line. Like we may not live to see the finish line. And so, and that is such a white culture thing to like means to an end, you know, put, put, a, you know, have a little project and finish it because it's that assembly line kind of thinking. And That is something that we have to, that we have to buck that, you know, I might not live to see this work completely done, but it's not going to stop me from, you know, stepping in the mud.
0: And 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 I wrote that, the full quote that she said is you can't see the finish line, but you live your life every day. Like you can win around every corner. And that's sort of the battle every day. You have to focus on those small battles and every day and people, the shared truth is that every day a black person wakes up, and is able to make it through the day and, and go back to bed is a successful day. And, that, and that's sad that that's a challenge and a reality, but it's the, it's the truth. And I don't think people really understand that truth. And I think that's a lot of white people don't understand that at all.
1: Um, I was gonna say that the understanding of trauma throughout, like I just been thinking and meditating on like trauma because we hear the word trauma so often. I think we're desensitized to the word trauma and I think I heard that like my black students experience trauma every day and I was like, yeah, yeah, trauma, uh-huh. And then one of my colleagues was sharing one of her stories and she was explaining like the, the long-term effects of that trauma and how like you have flashbacks and you have anxiety and you have things that make you shut down. And as a survivor of sexual abuse, like I know those things. And when I heard those things, I was like, holy shit, trauma. And for some reason like that word had not clicked for me before in hearing like like when we think about soldiers with ptsd like the effect of that on their day-to-day life that they are like barely functional that is the kind of trauma like we're talking about here and so the fact that our black students are functioning every day like they are the most impressive students at sel that we have ever seen because like they are They are proceeding and they are going back into that school all the time and so i was just like just thinking about the word trauma and that impact on students
14: thank you for sharing that miss Safford. um yeah black people definitely can handle trauma i mean it is it's kind of like a sad thing to say but um yeah we all have some some form of that you know so whether you've been like as as a male you know, being harassed by the cops or, you know, uh, having some situation be escalated that, you know, you you just know your white friends just wouldn't have had to deal with it in that same way. And I mean, one of the simple things I I think that people may not think about sometimes is that, you know, it's all different types of white people, it's all different types of black people, and it's all different types of other kinds of people, but black people can't hide their skin. So, if I see you miss Sanford, I don't know whether you live in Carroll County. I don't know whether you live in Chevy Chase, you know I don't know where you live, but if I see you and you're black you know chances are you live in a in a black area or you know you you may hang around with black people so if you have a if you know if you have a bad reputation of black people or low standard idea for black people then you automatically think oh well this person's probably poor this person's probably not that smart uh you know so it's um you know just just i guess getting to individually know people um is like one of the first steps like somebody that's just racist i mean so i my personal opinion i grew up in missouri i seen some racist people if you're racist, I mean, that's a small part of the population. It, it is what it is. I'm not talking to those people. But the people that really, like you guys, that really may not know, like, how bad it's been, you know, me or Mr. Penn, we can say, like, oh, you didn't know that? I mean, and, you know, it's not to make light of the situation, but it's like, you know, I remember being a kid and my mom getting pulled over for, like, you know, having a tail light out or a rolling stop or something like that. And, like, the cops took her license, and, like, they held her for, like, an hour. And this one, I was, like, probably five years old, six years old, you know, and it's been worse for me. I mean, I get stopped at least a couple times a year, uh, and it can't all be because of driving, you know, because I'm still out with a license free in the streets. (laughs) My wife is winking at that. I'll let somebody else talk.
5: I was also gonna like build off a of trauma. I also think that trauma is not, I think a lot of people um, when they hear trauma, they hear it as and think of it as like, it's always gonna be such a huge experience. And I think that trauma can um, definitely be that, but it can also be like for me, um, what's trauma for me as a black woman is not wanting to speak out in certain situations because whenever I do and when my experiences have been people call me radical or like girl like you need to tone it down like we weren't even being racist things like that and so like going to an all-white college and being in classes and hearing microaggressions or people wanting to touch my hair and having to like I'm like traumatizing that that's uncomfortable when that shouldn't be traumatic for me but like those small things can cause trauma. And so I was um, thinking like, whenever I think about um, the idea that Amber said about bringing this into schools, and I realized that we um, want to make people feel comfortable and not be defensive. But I always kind of think of like, me as a black um, child growing up, having to be in uncomfortable situations. And like, in order to make my white counterparts feel comfortable my 22 years of life and like as a teacher what is my job i'm here for my students i'm not here for my coworkers. so like yes we're like we can work together but at the end of the day i'm here to make my students succeed and reach where they need to be um emotionally mentally like all of that so like i should not worry about right now it's me worrying about I don't want you to be uncomfortable in my classroom. I don't want you to have dramatic experiences in my classroom. So if that means that I have to be uncomfortable and tell my um my teammate, hey, that was not something that we need to do in my classroom. And maybe she gets offensive or he gets offensive. And it's and maybe our relationship is like maybe that like affects our relationship, but like my student had it's about it's about my student. And I think that's something that like when we're like, scared to bring it in the classroom I'm into like our, our random PD week. Like Amber said, like when we're scared to do that, we have to think about we're not here like for my teammates. I'm here mainly for my students. And my students need this. And so we have to be uncomfortable and we have to make other people uncomfortable because schools have been segregated for 66 years. All these black kids have been uncomfortable for 66 years. So if you're uncomfortable for an hour, like I think that's okay. And I think that we can
0: handle that. Uh, absolutely. And, and you've done those things where, in the beginning, what you you're saying about trauma, and we think of trauma as these massive events, but these small traumas, these small microaggressions, you know, on a daily basis add up, and, and they're taxing, and they're weighing, and it is traumatic. And so some of the ways that white supremacy and trauma shows up in schools is tracking, tokenization, mentality of ownership single narrative curriculum, which we already talked about, tone policing, spirit murdering, um, lack of recruitment of teachers of color, being the one of one in the school building, having no one to talk to or respond to or not even say anything or speaking up because you know no one is going to understand your perspective. And then you will be tone police to calm down. You always get so emotional. You're speaking too loud. I'm talking loud and I'm passionate about this because this is important. That's why. And so being able to push that conversation further um, is something that is a lot of work in taxing, but that's how sort of white supremacy and sort of this, this trauma shows up in our schools. Um, and then also one thing that they really talked about, which I thought was really important is sort of the the role of these behavior interventionists and um, director of equities where, you know, you're managing inequality and the goal should be to eradicate it and that we're constantly living in these things. And like Jocelyn said, it's been 66 years and we know from our last episodes, Brown versus Board, all the black teachers got fired. They took all the black students, moved them to white schools, and all the black teachers got fired. And so, when we talk about equity and we talk about um, managing that inequality, rather than trying to actually break that cycle and actually fix it, um, again, that, that that's it's a big ask, but that that's where we need to go if we're actually going to have this anti-racist lens as we do this work. Um, and oh, and Katrina made a good point. Katrina, do you want to talk about an event on July eighth? Um, that's happening in Baltimore County, um, wanted an opportunity for us to, you know, really start this conversation with leaders. I think a question earlier was about how do we have this conversation with leaders? Um, Do you wanna speak on that?
9: I just wanna say that um, since there is going to be a meeting and we know it's four to six on July 8th, each of us needs to be there and to share both those concerns that we want to be changed on our PD days before school starts. Those PDs are not finalized yet. So what we need to do at that meeting is say, these are the issues that we want discussed. These are the requirements that we want all staff to participate in because you may give individuals an option to do surveys that deal with implicit bias, but many of them are not going to do that. So certain things have to be required like back in the day still presently, where you have to have X amount of reading credits, you had to take teacher expectations, student achievement years ago. We can require now that everyone go through that deep identification of where they are when it comes to their biases and then expect change. When you go in for informal observations, Those kinds of changes need to be a part of that evaluation process. Those domains, one, two, three, four, where are cultural relevancy embedded there? I don't see it. Yes, it's gonna be a lot of work. This is my 43rd year of teaching in Baltimore County. I see change because we're having the discussion. (laughs) But it's not time to stop. This is just a beginning again. So we've gotta keep going with it. I'm committed to doing it, and we are having a black affinity group at our school as well as a white affinity group in our school because we want the discussions to continue. So for what we can do now in terms of pre service days, show up July 8th, speak July 8th, and identify who you want to have as those facilitators for the required PD. What are they going to say? It can't happen. If so many people want it, it can happen. So show up.
0: And, and that's what we need to do, especially because this is a Baltimore County event. And I know the board members will be there. And I know that Dr. Williams will be there. This is the time to, like they say, speak truth to power. And this is not, and so they're putting a lot of this on students and they're asking them to tweet out videos and you know things that I don't think is the best way to do this. But again, I think it's very important for us to show up and be heard that we are leading into this work. And if any decision that needs to be made must have that anti-racist lens, that that's non-negotiable, any sort of policy. And so as Senator Hedelman was talking about, they use that ABC framework, which I put on the Padlet. If you have any other resources, edit to the Padlet, I'll put it back in the chat. Um, but as she was saying, they use those 10 questions as they were writing policy I'm curious to if we were to apply that framework to Baltimore County policy you know what would the the responses be like I think that'd be an interesting uh, study to do or an exercise to do um, so, so one other thing that I want to jump into I mean if we're going all the way there one thing that Dina Simmons brought up that I thought was very interesting and I think appropriate for the moment is sort of her question about you know what can I do with my white privilege to help? Is sort of a question in white fragility. Um, you know, that, that's a text that's really um, popular now and sort of people embracing their white fragility. But she even said that question in itself is offensive and racist. And because it's saying that you're using your power, which is above me, your white fragility, one, I'm gonna hold on to it, but then I'm gonna wield it to hopefully now raise you up and bring you up to my now supreme level. And that question in itself is, is racist and offensive. And that was one where the, the food was burning, and I was like, "Wow, I can't." <laughs> wow. Um, thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that that statement rocked me too. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Thank you for saying that. Um, I never really thought of it like that. Yeah. Um, to be very um, honest and vulnerable, I've actually thought, you know, what can I do with my privilege? I, I have this privilege. I need to do something. That is such wrong thinking. Um, I'm so glad that she shifted my mind um, and shared that. That I wrote that down as well and circled it a million times.
14: So, I I, go ahead. Okay.
10: I was just going to say she followed that with um, get out of our way. And I just, you know, it was, it was a really powerful moment because um, how many people get in the way, um, well-meaning, but really are ta- continuing to take up space.
14: Yeah, and, and I think um, I can go either way with that, but I, I think if you have resources or you have some power, obviously you use that, but just, you know, keeping in mind that it's not because you're, uh, you know, uh white Jesus or, you know, the, the great white hope or the, the savior, you know, obviously if you have a team of, uh, you know if you have a staff of 50 that's like minded and this other person has two people obviously you know you're yielding some power so i i you know obviously she's saying get out of my way um but you know you can still join the team that's my opinion thank
2: you cornell
0: yeah, but I, honestly, and I think if Bettina was here, she would push back on you and that she was making that clear like there there are women, black women, have represented humanity throughout history. And so if we're really going to think about the humanity of our students and eliminate tracking and eliminate, um, you know, some of this, the hierarchy of how you move mm-hmm. up in administration and testing and praxis tests and all these barriers to, you know, that are laid before people of color that would want to get an education, but there is no respect. It's not a conducive environment. There's all these roadblocks you need to, you need to, you know, she would say, we need to all those things and allow black women to lead because they've been leaders of humanity since the beginning. And so for all of us, myself included as a black man, get out of the way too. And that's something that I've had to like, think about and be like, what, what is my role in all this? Am I trying to be a male dominant, trying to lead this work? Maybe I need to step aside and, 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 you know, think about it more of a humanity side
14: yeah and i can respect that perspective and i'll be ready for it too but uh i think uh the idea too at least from my point of view is if we're all kind of accepting that this is a a white supremacist uh system uh it may be helpful to understand some of those inner workings so not saying that you know obviously you know we want to block what anybody's doing but, like, even from the, you know, integration of schools, you know, we, we read, you know, we try to research and everything like that. But we really don't know, uh, you know, what some of those meetings were like. We don't know what, you know, we're learning about some of those processes that were set in place. But, unfortunately, just like I would think that most Black people would agree, this is the first time in history we kind of had this, well, at least in, like, in my history, that we've kind of had this kind of, opportunity so as black people we're still learning also so we know what we want but you know if nobody was listening to us 30 days ago it's like oh people are listening now oh, okay let me figure out what i want to say
0: and i think that's why we're trying to look out for all these different resources and tr- try to do as much i mean we're playing catch up right now and as educators it's the the ignorance and us not knowing is completely unacceptable. And so yeah, the, the learning curve is extremely steep and we are under a clock that doesn't really have time on it right now. Time is <laughs> useless right now. But you know, eventually we are coming back to school. Do Are we gonna be prepared to tackle all of these challenges? We see that as the higher we go up in leadership, the support is less and less. And so is it really on school leaders, parents, teachers, Siblings, I I don't even know, you know, how how do we really make the change? Hillary? do you wanna jump in or anybody else? Or Kelly or?
6: I was just responding to, Kelly had just posted something about that beating the odds award, Mm -hmm. right? So it's basically saying right in your face, you've got uh, racial issues, you've got economic, basically all the challenges, oh, but you beat it, but where's the support? Again, that was striking
0: striking Managing the inequality
6: striking and how often is
13: beating the odds really just playing the game of the man anyway like i mean what 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 odds? like all, all you're doing is you're being rewarded for falling into line and isn't that what schools like that isn't that what we do in schools it's like fall in line fall into lockstep um and if we're going to, if we're going to truly disrupt the system, we have to, we have to completely challenge that way. We have to challenge that way of thinking of, of like, what is it? What, what, what are we considering success? How far are we willing to go to change, to just dismantle it?
0: And, and that goes right along with defining success if we're looking at the data for 20 years and black and brown kids are failing, how is anybody successful? You know, if the white kids are being successful but all of our black students are failing, how are we saying that's successful? Then no one is successful. And so it's really identifying that success criteria, which Dale in a couple episodes really pushed us to challenge us of defining as educators, what is our collective success criteria? And I, and I, I feel like if we were to give that question to a lot of different educators, the answers would be, all over the map
1: I feel like we've lost track of what our end goal of schooling is like we just keep using the old curriculum and the old ideals but like our world is so different and so like we we have like we just keep like fixing the middle and changing little things in the middle but like is our end goal serving us
11: I don't think we lost track of the end goal. I think that the end goal is working quite fine i think fine. i think the system keeping white kids in in their success is going great black and brown kids are failing as they should be and i think i think everything is going great <laughs> i don't think we lost sight of any goal i think the goal is working just quite fine amber i, wanna- I agree with
15: you 150 percent. the system is working exactly the way it's set up to work I was in a offending group with other principals last week and when I heard the percentage of non-white administrators in Baltimore County, when you think about how large of a system it is, 19% of principals are black. If we do non-white, we jump to a rocketing 21%. That speaks volumes to me. And it makes me think about Jocelyn's comment about because If anyone of color speaks with any passion, people get nervous. Oh my goodness, are you being aggressive? Are you upset? So as long as we make sure certain individuals don't hold certain positions and are not the voices in the room, we don't have to change what's happening because that voice is never heard. They remain voiceless.
13: And that's what, and that's what um, I wanna say it was Dina said, she was talking about the trauma of erasure that right now. like that and, and isn't that what isn't that what we do? Well, what I do as a white person like just erase, erase things that are uncomfortable, erase things that um, don't you know continue to keep me in my place of perceived power
0: and That goes with the white fragility is you know that, that savior mentality. Or am I losing power in my classroom? Is It's my classroom, am I losing the power of my students? It's like, that, that's not what it's about. It's not about control. That's how white supremacy shows up in our schools again. It's their classroom. It's, it's, it's their learning. It's, it's, you should really be driven by the students, not your need to save all my little kiddos and all my babies. You now they're your students, they're your scholars. And so I know, you know, language matters. And I know there's been a big movement for scholars. And for me, honestly, I was like, I don't, students, scholars, I love them all the same, but I think the, the movement is what's important of really seeing your students as scholars, that they're there to learn and again, to be excellent. And that's the only standard that we should be teaching by and supporting our students by is they are there to achieve. And that's, we need to do whatever we need to to make that happen.
15: Okay, I have a kind of a comment. Um, as a parent, I have two boys and they are very different. Now my oldest son, is and I would I would argue equally as bright I don't want wanna necessarily use the term smart because they you know I think you could pick up intelligence but they are very bright boys and my oldest is quiet and will follow the rules my youngest is more energetic but I wonder if and in school the oldest has always been oh this this is Wilson so like when we would come up to the school it's like oh these are Wilson Smith's parents like you know it was a big deal um, but Brayden, my youngest, I wonder if he's going to get that same treatment, even though he has the same capability. Um, and then that circles back into what we were talking about trauma. Trauma is not always something outside of your home, because as a little girl, I remember like being told, like, I can't say something, anybody did anything to me, but being told when you go in the store, don't touch anything, you know, because... Experiences of my mom, or whatever, somebody thinking you did something, he gets you into trouble. Or be quiet, don't be too loud. And I don't want to traumatize my youngest by trying to get him to fit into a mold that's not his mold, because that's not how he shines. He shines by speaking his opinion, by being energetic. And he has all of the capabilities of his older brother. But will he receive all of the, uh, treatments treatments not
0: even special treatment I understand what you're saying and and since I I know both of your children you're, you're asking a very important question and it goes to sort of how white supremacy shows up in schools and control and policing of tone and so usually quieter kids that are extremely bright and follow the rules and don't really push back on and really does what the teacher says teachers love those kids oh because they do everything i say and you don't have to put that extra effort i don't have to and i'm speaking from my opinion i'll say um as a teacher i would say you know i don't have to focus as much because you know what i can just say it this one direction and they got it and let them go but this other group this more energetic who may question or need more support or maybe more physical or more visual or something else another component to my lesson hmm, that that's more challenging it's more work, and so that, that, that sort of policing of activity and wanting kids to fit into the one mold, listen to what the teacher's saying, follow the directions, do it my way, I think is how sort of that control seeps into our classrooms and it's that ownership of the classroom, it's really the student's classroom. And if so he wants to be active and loud and you know, be, be participate and teach some of the lesson, that, that should be something that works for him and conducive to the environment are we trying to police what students are doing and their movement and their actions and their speech at all times as teachers?
7: Yeah, I think that this, I mean, that relates back to, I think we talked about this at um, last week's meeting too, but like the book, if anyone has ever read troublemakers, that's exactly what it is. Like as soon as kids enter the school building, we try to teach, not try to, we teach and inform and then, uh, was the word I'm trying to say? Compliance. Uh, yeah, compliance. Like, we're, we're making it so that they have to abide by these rules, like, right from the very beginning. And if you don't fit the rule, then there's going to be a consequence to that. So even if you, um, it's like kids have to kind of, like, interpret this on their own, too. Like, if you're on the carpet and you guys are reading a story, I'm allowed to get up to go get a drink of water, but I'm not allowed to get up and go to the bathroom. So within these rules that we set for them, they also have to understand these multi-layers where it's like, how can we possibly ask a student to like kind of like differentiate and like build upon that when they're they're five years old? Like they just entered the school building. So it is it's just of course we're, we're demanding compliance.
0: I mean we shouldn't and be but and we especially are. when kids know that these rules don't make sense and then they don't comply with the rules, there's something wrong with them and that we are trying to create more rules to police them even further. And that's something we see in society. I mean, we have laws for everything. I mean, we have laws where you can't even control your own consciousness. You can't control what goes into your body, except alcohol is fine, but other substances are not. I mean, and so we have these, you know, asinine rules and laws that don't even make sense for us as adults. You know, I can go to war, but I can't drink a beer. I mean, so all of these things that aren't new, but they're also in our classrooms and for young kids we have these rules and they see the inequities for some students, whether it's racial, whether it's gender, whether it's size, whether it's age, whether it's um, intellectual ability. I mean, we're, we're differentiating and segregating kids and different rules apply, but also never having that honest conversation with kids about why this student may need something different why this kid may look different, why this parents are saying these ugly, nasty things at home, but now here in this safe space in my classroom, we are gonna talk about these things. We are gonna talk about what's happening in Washington DC because those things are important. Are we gonna talk about all the mature you know, sexual assault things? No, because it's an elementary classroom, but I can't pretend that you live in a bubble, you are in this world, and I think that's something where kids are changing, the world is changing, and I think when I was a kid you could Eat your vitamins, drink your milk. You know, if you pray every day, if you, you eat right, and you, you, you're honest, you, you'll win and you'll succeed at life. But I think right now we know that's not true. You can cheat and steal and lie, and you can still win. You could run this country if you do that. And so I think if we're still under those, that, you know, that, that, that inauthentic sort of approach of, you know, put your best foot forward and always be honest, that, that's not the way the world works. And I think we need to be far more honest with our students about how to navigate these systems while they still exist, but also we need to abolish and eradicate these systems as well at the same time. And that's, I think that's the pressure we're feeling as educators, we know it's not gonna change tomorrow. How do we prepare our students in a system that's set up against them?